History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 394th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. On this episode, Kelly, we're going up to Canada. Awesome. We're going to a French area. So there are some French words in this episode. You and I do not speak French. Oh, Lordy. So we apologize (laughs) now. We already guarantee we butcher the English language. We're sure going to butcher the French. Oh boy, here we go. Strap in. We're going to be talking about some haunts in Quebec City. And I believe that's how they say it. I hope so. Looking forward to it. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Sheila, Lindsay with an S-E-Y, John, Kate with a K, and Clancy, who ends her name with an I. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook group. And now, this moment, Noddity. There are many places in the world that have the word devil in their names, and we've talked about many of them on the podcast. One that we recently learned about is the Devil's Throat Cave in Bulgaria. This is hidden deep in the Trigrad Gorge in the Rodope Mountains. The cave dates back around 175,000 years. There are a few legends connected to the cave, and one of these is about Orpheus, the Greek poet and musician who was taught to play the lyre by Apollo. Orpheus descended into the underworld through the devil's throat to find his beloved Eurydice. He found her, but Hades wouldn't let her go unless Orpheus promised not to look at her until they were on the surface. Unfortunately, he did look back once to make sure she was still with him, and her shadow slowly faded. Orpheus wept for seven days, and those tears created a spring in the cave, which reputedly has healing properties and can grant wishes. There's a waterfall inside the cave in this area that is so loud the room is called the Booming Hall. And this is the highest underground waterfall. This room is big enough to fit a two-story building inside. The natural entrance to the cave resembles a devil's head, and inside there is a devil's head carved near the entrance. There's also a relief of a man, and people claim that the figure of Virgin Mary can be seen in the spring. A really scary thing about the cave is that anything that falls into the spring is lost in a 492-foot tunnel. Nobody has been able to figure out or map the water labyrinth. And one attempt to do this in 1970 killed two scuba divers whose bodies were never found. To get out of the cave, visitors have to climb down 301 steep steps. The Devil's Throat Cave has some very unique features, and it certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. (music) 
in the month of July on the 14th in 1968, Hank Aaron hit his 500th home run. Last week, Kelly and I watched baseball's All-Star Game, and they started with a dedication to Hank Aaron, who was one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Unfortunately, Aaron passed away at the beginning of this year, which at the time of this recording is 2021. He was born in Alabama in 1934 and was a star athlete in school. He was still a teenager when he signed with the Negro League's Mobile Black Bears. He moved on to the Indianapolis Clowns, and in 1953, he got a contract with the National League's Milwaukee Braves. When he debuted with them on April 13, 1954, he was the last Negro League baseball player on a major league roster. Aaron mostly played right field, and he played for 23 seasons, 21 of them with the Milwaukee-slash-Atlanta Braves. He and his family endured racial threats throughout his career, and he became active in the civil rights movement. Aaron went on to hit 755 home runs in his career, breaking Babe Ruth's record along the way. He retired in 1976, but continued with baseball in the front offices. He received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2002. Quebec City is the capital city of the province of Quebec and sits along the St. Lawrence River. The city is mostly French-speaking as it was established by the French. This is an area of natural beauty and centuries of history. Several locations here that incorporate those two elements are reputedly haunted. These locations include Cathedral of the Holy Trinity, Plains of Abraham, Chateau, Frontenac Hotel, and Mount Morency Falls. Join us as we explore the history and haunts of Quebec City in Canada. The Algonquian people called this area Quebec, meaning where the river narrows. This was the St. Lawrence River, and it brought explorer Jacques Cartier here in 1535. An Iroquoian settlement was already here, and Cartier would return in 1541 to establish the first French settlement in North America, Fort Charlesburg Royal. The settlement didn't last long. It wouldn't be until 1608 that French explorer Samuel de Champlain would establish another settlement. He would build fortified city walls that still stand today and are part of a World Heritage UNESCO site. English privateers captured the fledgling city in 1629 during the Anglo-French War. Champlain would manage to negotiate a return to French hands with a very unique agreement. French King Louis XIII had to pay the dowry of English King Charles' wife. Can you imagine that was your agreement? It's not like you're paying for land or (laughs) paying some taxes. It's like, okay, I'll pay your wife's dowry if you give me back this land that we used to have. Despite being the large capital city it is today, Quebec City grew slowly and was dominated by members of religious orders in those early years. Quebec City would face more conflict. The French and Indian Wars would use the city as a launching point for raids on New England. The English would attack in 1690, and the Seven Years' War would leave the city captured by the British in 1759. One of the battles of that war... Battle of the Plains of Abraham would leave spiritual residue behind, which we'll cover in a bit. The city would be lost permanently by the French. 
the British would later agree to let the original Quebecois to maintain their Catholic roots and to speak French. This would be a good move because it kept these original citizens from joining the American rebels during the American Revolution. That didn't stop the Americans from trying to take Quebec City in 1775. The British regulars and Canadian militia held them off and the Americans would not attack again, not even during the War of 1812. The Citadel of Quebec was built in 1820 to further protect the city. Quebec City eventually grew to the third largest port city in North America in the early 19th century. The city would take center stage during World War II with two meetings between the Allied leadership as they planned the D-Day invasion. The Chateau Frontenac was one of the locations they used for these meetings. It's one of our haunted locations as well. With such a long history and battles being fought here, it's not surprising that some of the historic locations in Quebec City have ghost stories. There are several ghost tours offered here, one of which looks like a fun scavenger hunt, Kelly. Very cool. I think that's such a neat idea. I would love to do a ghost hunt that has a scavenger hunt. Absolutely. I think that's what Myra and Ken did recently. Yeah. I'm not really sure how that works, but it definitely sounds like fun. Yeah. It it makes you wonder, you know, if you're going on a ghost tour around a city, because usually you're just standing outside of a building. I don't know if it'd be like maybe some symbols that are on the outside of the building that you'd be looking for or what. First person to catch an EVP. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Our first location here in Quebec City is the Cathedral of the Holy Trinity. The Cathedral of the Holy Trinity was the first Anglican cathedral built outside of the British Isles, and it is located here in Quebec City. The cathedral was built between 1800 and 1804 under the direction of King George III, who donated religious objects to the church. A special pew was made for him in the cathedral, and I don't believe he ever visited here, so he never sat in that pew and never even got to see the church. Oh, wow. The architects were William Hall and William Robe, and they used London's Church of St. Martin in the Fields as their model. The spire atop the cathedral made it the tallest structure in Quebec City for many years. The building was constructed from gray stone and in the shape of a parallel pipe, which has three sets of four parallel edges. There are oval-shaped windows that had once been cartouches bearing the royal coat of arms. Bells were added in 1830, and these are the oldest change-ringing bells in Canada. These kinds of bells are very unique and rare in Canada and are rung in elaborate changing sequences. The same foundry that cast the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, Big Ben, and the Jean-Baptiste Bell of the Notre Dame Basilica in Montreal is named Whitechapel Bell Foundry in London, and it casts the bells that are here at the cathedral. So I thought that was really cool that it had the connection to the Liberty Bell and stuff. Yeah, very nice. The spirit that haunts the cathedral is thought to have been attached to a body that was supposedly buried beneath the building. The spirit likes to play the organ. People will be sitting in the church and hear organ music when no one is sitting at the organ. There's another legend that claims that the body buried under the cathedral was a baby and that the spirit is that of the mother looking for her child. A female spirit is sometimes seen floating in the balcony. Organists claim to hear a woman crying when they practice. And if a toy is placed on the organ, the church stays quiet. That's interesting. So whatever spirit is here, whether it's this mother or baby, somebody else definitely is connected to the organ. And it's interesting that if there's a toy there, almost like a offering being placed for peace, there's peace. Very unusual. Next, we have the Plains of Abraham, which was the setting of the battle named for it during the Seven Years' War that took place on September 13, 1759. The name of the area came from the farmer who owned the land, Abraham Martin. This was a battle between the British and the French and didn't last long. 
American colonists, Canadian militia, and First Nation tribes also took part. And those of us in America are more familiar with the name French and Indian War. James Wolfe was a commanding officer of the British forces, and he and his men arrived in June of 1759 and held positions along the St. Lawrence River. This wasn't going to be easy for the British. In order to attack the French, they would have to cross the strong flow of the St. Lawrence River and get past the battery of guns at the fort. Wolfe led his men in their first attempt in July, but were quickly rebuffed. The leader of the French was Louis-Joseph Marquis de Montcalm. He was resistant to coming out in open attack, and Wolfe thought perhaps he could get him to move if he cut off supplies to the city. When that didn't work, he had his forces start hitting spots in the countryside around Quebec City. This still didn't work, so he made a bold move to sell several ships past the fort batteries, and it worked. They made it upriver, and this gave Wolfe the opportunity to attack from a better position. In the wee hours of the morning on September 13th, Wolfe's men quietly made their way to a plateau and stretched across the plains of Abraham in a horseshoe formation. The French made their move and started firing as they approached the British, while the British waited until the French got closer and released such a volley that the French quickly retreated. Wolfe was hit three times in the exchange and reputedly said that he would have peace since he knew that the French were in retreat. Then he died, as did several other British officers, leaving the battle without much direction. The French countered with a relief force, which quickly pulled back as well. Montcalm's army was allowed to escape, but he had been mortally wounded and died the next morning. In total, the battle lasted about an hour, but would be one of the most significant of the war as the British captured Quebec and would never lose it again. About 180 men were killed with over a thousand wounded. Isn't that amazing, Kelly? You have a battle that lasted maybe an hour and both of the commanding officers were hit and died along with several other officers. Must have been pretty intense. Yeah. Like so many other battlefields, this one is said to be haunted, and some even claim that this is the most haunted site in Quebec. The battle had been fought at midday, and this is when many apparitions have been seen, mostly as residual troops still carrying on a battle. There are also solitary spirits of soldiers from the British and the French scene. They are usually wearing battle-scarred uniforms. There are tunnels near the field, and these are particular hot spots for paranormal activity. And I, I'm not sure what the tunnels are from. I don't know if they were dug as some kind of a... Transport system? Getting from one place to another? Yeah, or trenches in some way that became tunnels. I have no idea, because, I mean, it was somebody's field. So, I mean, you're not going to be tunneling in your field. Very strange. People claim to be touched by something they can't see in the tunnels. And there's the strong smell of gunpowder, sometimes detected. One person recounted a tale of walking in the tunnels and all of a sudden a soldier appeared and started running toward him, brushing past him with such force that he was nearly knocked down. The date of the battle, September 13th, is when many experiences are reported. And these include not only the smell of gunpowder, but sulfur. And there are also strange noises like gunshots, cannon fire, and screams. And what a great date, because you know there's got to be a few Fridays that fall on that September 13th. So <laughs> I would imagine. It'd be fun to go out to those fields on that particular day and see if Friday the 13th brings any extra spirits. Now on to Montmorency Falls. This is located near the Plains of Abraham. These falls are on an ancient continental margin that is about 7.5 miles from the heart of Old Quebec City and are part of the Montmorency Falls Park. They are sourced from the Montmorency River and drop over a cliff into the St. Lawrence River and are 272 feet high, which is nearly 100 feet taller than Niagara Falls. Can you imagine going over that thing? Uh, No. 
You think about all the people that have gone over <laughs> Niagara Falls as stunts and how many have died and everything. It's like, I wonder if anybody ever tried that on this one. I wouldn't go over Niagara either. So No, <laughs> but man, that's a huge drop. Samuel de Champlain named the falls for the Duke of Danville, Charles de Montmorency, Danville, Admiral France and Brittany. There are many things to see and do at the park. General James Wolfe had built installations near the falls that could be seen today. There is a cable car that visitors can ride from the foot of the waterfall to the top. I'll pass on that, too. (laughs) Get ready for the next thing you can do, Kelly. I'm reading. A suspension bridge stretches across the entire width of the falls that people can walk across. No. Hail. No. No. (laughs) Hail. I'm sure it's beautiful, though. I'm like, who even thinks these things up? And then there's literally people who do it. Even with a change of underwear with me. No. (laughs) (laughs) And this is with the water roaring just below your feet. To get back down, people have the option of going down a 487-step panoramic staircase that's along the cliff. There are also zip lines and something called the Via Ferrata, which is a hybrid of hiking and rock climbing. Now, I've done zip lines. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I can do that. But these other things, mm mm-mm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I can't do zip lines either because that's a heights thing too. But I sure would do it over a waterfall. I don't know why I can zip line, but I can. <laughs> For some reason. I even zip lined upside down once. You are a crazy woman. Well, this we know. <laughs> <laughs> so tell them what this Via Ferrata is because that is definitely not happening for me. So hikers use metal holds and a steel cable to traverse the rock and they're just Different levels of difficulty, so even kids as young as eight can get in on the fun. When I was looking at the website about this stuff, I was like, oh, there's heck, heck no, I'm not doing metal holds and a steel cable. And then I was looking and it's like beginner level, age eight to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what? (laughs) I mean, you're going to let an eight-year-old kid, this must be like right just barely above the ground. And I then no idea. it had like intermediate and it was like 12 to whatever. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> no. no. Diane no. wasn't just no. She was heckin' no. Yeah. <laughs> Not my kids. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This episode has been brought to you by HelloFresh. Kelly, we've been using HelloFresh for, I don't know, what, six or seven months now? I think it's been about that, yeah. And it's made our life so much easier. Each week, there's several meals that we don't even have to think about. We just open up the bag. It's got all the fresh ingredients in it. It has the directions. It provides everything. You just add your own salt and pepper, sugar, and some oil. And it's always so delicious. It is. And it's basically like having a gourmet meal at home. It's definitely restaurant quality. Absolutely. And anything that takes the stress out of trying to figure out what you're going to make, especially when we both work, makes our lives so much easier. And we certainly aren't spending as much at the grocery store either. HelloFresh is 28% cheaper than shopping at our local grocery store. And as compared to going out to restaurants, it's 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal. What's really nice is the portions are perfect for us. And sometimes we even get two meals out of a single meal. So many times if you're looking to purchase ingredients for an unusual meal that you don't normally cook every single week, you end up with excess that goes bad, whether it be herbs or what have you. With this, everything is perfectly measured out and there's no waste. That's one thing that I love about it. And there's something for everyone to enjoy. They have recipes that were designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts. 
If you are vegan, they have options for you. We don't eat pork in our house because it just doesn't agree with me. So we can change out if they're sending us a pork meal. I just change it out that week for something else that has chicken or red meat or something else. And we've actually tried a few of the vegan meals and really enjoyed them. They were delicious. If you want to join us in using HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash Bump14 and use code Bump14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash Bump14, use code Bump14, and you'll get 14 free meals plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. The ghost that is seen here is Our Lady in White, and they also refer to her as the White Lady here. She dates back to the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. The legend connected to her claims that her name was Matilda, and she was engaged to marry a young man named Louis in July of 1759. This was at the same time that the British launched their attack near the falls. Louis was a member of the militia, and he was killed in the battle. Matilda was so devastated by his death that she put on her wedding dress and threw herself over the falls. So there's somebody who did go over the falls, I guess. People who see her spirit claim to see her walking near the top of the falls, and others actually see her throw herself into the churning waters at the base of the falls. So there's somebody that went over the falls. <laughs> Good grief, <laughs> I guess it wasn't like one of the Terrible. people who jumped in a barrel and went over. Yeah, I mean, she was devastated. <laughs> yeah, She went over the falls. <laughs> Good grief. I mean, how many of these stories have we heard of a woman putting on her wedding dress and then throwing herself over stuff? It's like, did one woman do it? Now every every place that's got some kind of water is like, yep, they do it all. Every single water place has a woman who loses her mind and just right. does that. One of the most famous hotels in Canada is the Fairmont Chateau Frontenac Hotel. This hotel was one of Canada's railroad hotels built to attract wealthy tourists to ride on the Canadian Pacific Railway. The building is gorgeous and rises 262 feet and sits prominently on a hill in the historic district of Quebec City, which had once been home to another hotel built in the 1780s. The chateau was named for a former governor of the colony, Louis de Boisdet, Count de Palouau et de Frontenac. The hotel was built in 1892 and designed by American architect Bruce Price. The part that catches one's eye right away is the central fortress-like tower that was inspired by medieval chateaus found in France. There are tall chimneys, ornate gables, fancy dormers, and large circular and polygonal towers and turrets. The exterior was fashioned from Glenboig bricks out of a region in Scotland and greystone ashlar. Interior embellishments are just as fancy with wrought iron, carved stone, mahogany paneling, and marble staircases. The Chateau Frontenac opened in 1893 and is one of the most photographed hotels in the world. The Citadel Wing was added in 1899. Several modifications would be done in the 20th century with a 1926 edition of the Central Tower designed by architects Edward and William Maxwell. And that's the thing that I said when you look at the picture, that's what catches your eye. So that wasn't there originally, but not too long after it was open. The Rue Mont Carmel was added in 1908. In 1993, the Claude Pratt Wing was built, and this added an interior swimming pool and fitness center. Today, the hotel is run by the Fairmont Hotel chain and features 611 rooms on 18 floors. This hotel also features a few ghosts. Apparently, the second floor has the most activity. It seems only fitting that the namesake of the hotel would be banging around in the hallways. 
Louis de Baudet de Frontenac could be one of the specters you run into if you stay here. He was the third governor general of New France, which is what they called Quebec. He did this for 10 years from 1672 to 1682, and his former home was close to, if not on the actual spot, where the hotel was built. That's why people think he's haunting the place. Either he's mad that they built over his home, or maybe he's just sticking to the place near his home. He's most often seen in 17th century garb, pacing in the hallways. He had died in his home, and before dying, he asked that his heart be mailed to his fiancée, who was still in France. Loverly. (laughs) What a great thing. (laughs) Hey, babe, I'm sending you my heart. You can imagine that the poor girl was horrified and had sent it back. And that's why they think Frontenac is at unrest. He's most often seen on that second floor and in the ballroom. The only person I've heard that, especially as a female, cherished a heart would be Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. <laughs> well, Apparently, she kept Percy's heart with her. The hotel is near the Plains of Abraham, so as you might suspect, some of those battle-torn spirits from the battlefield have wandered over to the hotel on occasion. They've been spotted both inside and outside of the hotel. And there's a lady in white here. Not much is known about this spirit other than she wears a white nightgown and is very sad. Her favorite thing to do is to join guests in bed, of course. We get that all the time in these hotels. (laughs) She just needs a little comforting. Sometimes people wake up and find her just staring down at them from the side of the bed. She's not attached to any particular room, so she could pop up anywhere. Someone posted on TripAdvisor, I'm just wondering if anyone has seen a ghost in this hotel. I'm staying in the Roosevelt suite, and it has a presence. I'm sure of it. I've never even believed in ghosts until today, as I'm sure I saw a man pass by our living room area. Let me know if anyone else has seen something similar, please. And they really didn't get any comments in return telling them that, yeah, they'd seen it. They've just a lot of people saying, I've heard it's haunted. And this is the Roosevelt suite, so I imagine that they have several rooms that are named there for the leaders of the Allied forces since they had a couple of meetings here at the hotel to plan the D-Day attacks and such. Quebec City is a very old city with wonderful historic buildings. Are these particular historic spots haunted? That That is for you to decide. I've never been to Quebec, I don't believe. I've not either. The only area of Canada that I've been to was Vancouver. Okay. I've been over to Victoria and Vancouver. I've been to Calgary. I've been to Regina and Saskatchewan and Winnipeg. But yeah, I don't think I've ever been over to Quebec. I've never been to, I guess, what you would call French Canada. But it sounds like a great place to check out. And these railway hotels are just amazing. I think we've done the Banff one in one of our previous episodes. Yes, I believe so. And just beautiful buildings and huge So you can imagine that they would be enticing to people who were wanting to take a trip on the railway. They're like, hey, take the railway and you can stay in our big fancy hotel. And I can imagine usually they're up on these hills, so they have a great view. And Canada has so many natural wonders and you can see the Aurora Borealis up there and stuff. Well, it is on the east side of the country, so maybe we'll get up there at some point. Yes, in the summer. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) As I like to say. I wouldn't dream of taking you up there in the winter. (laughs) In the summer. We want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Kelly, on the last episode, people might recall that I made up a term. (laughs) Nose (laughs) Nose picture. picture. (laughs) (laughs) And we got a lot of responses on that. A lot of people enjoyed that. 
And we had one of our listeners named Maya who was so inspired by it that she actually drew a picture to go with it. And we absolutely adore it. It looks like a ghost out of the 1920s. And the picture says, trust your nose picture. There might be a ghost. (laughs) I love it so much. I'm considering putting it on a (laughs) t-shirt. Yeah, we've got it up on our Instagram. And she'd said that uh, it was something that she would say for sure, too. So apparently she likes to make up her own words. So I'm like, (laughs) we should just make up our own dictionary, Maya. And then we heard from Jeannie, who was writing about the Bragg Light. Hello, just listened to your episode on the Bragg Light. Can't remember where or when I found out about your podcast, but at some point I made note of the podcast in this episode on a little piece of paper, and I was looking for a bookmark and found the note just tonight. (laughs) Better late than never. (laughs) I've been to the Bragg Light many times. When we were teenagers, senior high school age, and I'm 76, so it's been a very long time. Yes, it's scary. We always saw it every time we went. A bunch of us would hang out there with our smuggled beer. You have to understand the area which I'm from, Silsby, which is on the other side of Kuntz. Anyway, all the kids know each other in small towns, of course, and the Wild Bunch, well, not bad, but sneaking alcohol, and sometimes we would even drive to Louisiana, where we could get into the nightclubs easily. I guess they didn't cart them too hard, huh? Apparently not. We hung out together, a large bunch of us, because there isn't anything to do in small towns, so we made our own fun. Anyway, Bragg Light is a white ball, never saw colors. It does bounce, but never came close. Halfway down the road, it's a big wide clearing on both sides of the road and has these large transformer type structures down it. The light would go down around these structures. Sometimes we would be four to five cars and all these kids would get out of their cars. I mean, our cars usually had four or five people in each one. We had so much fun. So basically it's a big party. Yeah, sounds that way. This is bringing back so many memories. We'd get out, someone would scream and we would stumble all over each other trying to get back in our cars. (laughs) I'm not sure it's eight miles long, but never researched. Didn't seem like it, but the road is between two highways, not really towns per se, and you can see both highways when you're on the road. Yes, I heard all the tales and find it interesting that other places with other roads and lights have similar tales of the origin of the lights. I've only heard it called the Bragg Light. This is what the locals call it. I never went down it in the daytime, so I wouldn't recognize it probably, but it's narrow, not even sure two cars could pass each other. I think it's ghosts. There's no swamp, so how could it be swamp gas? And I agree, it's been going on for decades, if not a century, like some are reported. Just wanted to share and plan to listen to other episodes. Changing the subject just for a moment, we spent the night in an old jail in Bardstown, Kentucky, which has been there since back when they would hang criminals, and the hanging place was right out back of the jail. I mean, this is authentic, scary as could be, and I don't think I slept a wink. But it's a hotel now, and just thought if you're ever doing research on haunted jails, this may be one to follow. Interesting. Yeah. Well, she doesn't know yet, but if she listens to more episodes, she'll know we love haunted jails. We certainly become our do. new thing lately. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that with us, Jeannie. Jules wrote us about horsehair in historic structures. She said, I actually had a spirit encounter at Jackson Square in New Orleans while trying to wrangle a pissed off toddler wanting to earn Mardi Gras beads by lifting his shirt up. Oh my god. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh That's adorable well i was just watching what was going on around him so hey <laughs> oh my gosh anyway back on topic i just finished several episodes from 2015 and noticed you mentioned horsehair being used in historic structures i have no clue if any other people have informed you on that topic i've discovered through researching and preserving the 1820s home that i'm currently employed at that the use of horsehair was very common for that time period there were several reasons why it was used but the main reason was for making structures fire resistant I've seen the reasoning mentioned in several different journals from that time period. 
Isn't that interesting? That I it made had no a idea fire that resistant. would help make it fire resistant. I was aware that they would utilize that. Horsehair is actually very strong. And that's going to be her next point, Kelly. It was mostly, but not always, used in outside structure supports, i.e. Greek and Corinthian columns, of house structures built with wood. So I guess to, you know, make the wood a little bit stronger. A perfect example, along with ghostly folklore, would be the Forks of Cyprus in Florence, Alabama, my hometown. The Forks was also the birthplace of Queen, the main character in Alex Haley's novel. And then she just said that we were helping to keep her mind off of her mom who had to go through a biopsy. So hopefully those results come back better than... Yeah, best wishes be. on that. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. And not only did she do that, she shared a couple of pictures of her spooktacular toddler. <laughs> adorable. <laughs> and he is adorable. And then Shelly, who is one of our executive producers, she went to uh, Napa and uh, had a little bit of wine. <laughs> As one would do. But also typically. heard some ghost stories. And she shared one with us in the spooktacular crew. So one of the wineries we visited was Ghost Block Wines. It's on the site of the original land grant in the area like 1832, I think. Anyway, the holder of that grant was George C. Yaunt, and he is credited with planting the first wine grapes in the Napa Valley. He built a square log cabin in the middle of his land, which was called a block cabin. The current owner had been working on the farm in 1972, was hot and tired, so he stopped for a beer on his way home. An old man sat down with him and told him that he'd seen the ghost of George C. Yaunt walking from the cemetery across the field where the block cabin had been and up a ridge where he stood looking over the valley and the town he had founded. The current owner registered the name Ghost Block Wines the next day. But I love this part even more. George C. Yaunt had a recurring dream for three consecutive nights in 1847 about a group of settlers in trouble in the snow in the wilderness. The information from his dreams was used to locate and rescue the Donner Party. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I have never heard that before, but I'm going to research that to find out. Absolutely. How fascinating. Had these three dreams and it's like, you know, I think there's some people lost out there in the snow we better go look for. They're eating each other. Let's help them. Oh my gosh, Diane. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that with us, Shelly. Kelly, we also want to thank our listeners and, uh, you know, our friends and family for your support. We unfortunately had to go through something that I know so many of our listeners have been through and a lot of you guys share it in the Spooktacular crew. We had to send our wonderful little Savvy over the Rainbow Bridge yesterday, and that's the time of this recording. She was just a great dog. And you know what's really cool about what we do here, Kelly, is that we believe in spirits. And I feel like if God made us to have spirits, I think he made animals to have spirits, too, because we're so similar in the way we are. You know, we have this drive for a will to live, to be free. And I just can't imagine that animals wouldn't have a spirit that continues on. Kelly, we don't have as many listeners as a lot of the other paranormal shows out there because a lot of people want the creepy and the spooky. And I always feel like we have a higher caliber of listener because we have a lot of history (laughs) and we educate people here. I mean, our main goal is to entertain you while we educate you. And something else that has come out of this is that I think we've taken a lot of the spooky and creepy out of hauntings. And I think that makes it more attainable for other people because they're not so afraid of what we don't understand. Yeah, I definitely think so too. And one of the places that I've been in is Waverly Hills Sanatorium. And everybody talks about this place as being horrible and scary and creepy and these terrifying things happen. And there's all these shadow figures and blah, 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 blah. And the only time I've been in that building, you know, I came out of it and messaged you and I was like, I just had one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And it will always touch me because one of the things I think we also bring through this podcast is hope because we do believe that we go on after death. And when I was in Waverly Hills, that's the only time I've had an animal encounter. 
and hearing that dog whining three times. I told everybody it was so cool because it was a group experience and everybody else heard it. So you knew it really happened. And it was cool to hear something audible. It wasn't an EVP. We all heard it with our ears. Sure. But even more incredible to me was that convinced me that animals do have a spirit and they do go on. Exactly. And so we know that Savvy's going on along with all of you other listeners out there that have had pets and stuff. So they're all just having a great time over on the other side of the rainbow bridge there. So we just wanted to thank you guys for your thoughts and prayers and sending the good stuff. It was very sudden. We had no idea that she was sick. She's always just been a very healthy dog, but she was kind of having some trouble breathing. And so we took her in and found out that she had a cancer that had spread to her lungs. So we had to make that ultimate decision. We have invited her to come back and say hi sometime. We'd love it. (laughs) Absolutely. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Scott Booker for raising his support. Scott already has a mausoleum in the cemetery, Kelly. So usually what we do with people who give a little bit more than that level, we just start adding on to that mausoleum. You know, my parents have the first mausoleum that was ever in the cemetery, and it's that mansion that's up there on the hill (laughs) because they've been the biggest supporters of the show, and they were the ones who were funding it for the first six months. But Scott's going to have one right up there, too. We've got the Vander Yachts up there, and now Scott's going to be up there, and we're going to be adding some extra wings onto his mausoleum. I can't wait to see what Mort does with it. Mort, make a mini Taj Mahal. And we also want to welcome into the cemetery Jennifer Guthrie. We're going to be putting you into a garden crypt. Thank you so much, everyone, for supporting History Goes Bump. We really couldn't do this show without you. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. And now this month, really? <laughs> Do you forget your part that you play every week? All the last, time. Last week you were saying you fabulous people. And I have. Now you're saying my line. <laughs> well, whatever. An Iroquoian settlement was already here and Cartier would return in 19. 19- wow, I really moved him forward a lot of years. <laughs> He's a time traveler. That didn't stop the Americans from trying to take Quebec City in 1777. The British regulars... Oh, that's 1775. Oh. <laughs> Numbers. To say in 1777. In 1777. <laughs> I mean 1775. Did you say it that way? I think I might. Have. Okay. <laughs> like I'm losing my ever-loving mind. It has been quite the weekend. <laughs> 
building was constructed from gray stone and in the shape of a parallel and in the shape of a parallel and in the shape of a parallel piped. James Wolfe was the commanding officer of the British forces, and he and his men arrived in June of 19... Hmm? Now I'm doing it. <laughs> Everybody's time traveling today. That's right. We're all doing everything in the 1900s. Forget those 1700s. Isn't that what Bill and Ted Bill would do? Bill and Ted, yeah. <laughs> oh my. Boy, do we need some George Carlin right now. <sighs> in the month of July, on the 14th, in... In... Brushing past him with such force that he was nearly lock, locked down. <laughs> He's going into lockdown. <laughs> the building is gorgeous and rises 262 feet and sits prominently on a hill in the... <laughs> the Chateau Frontenac. Frontenac? Frontenac? I think it's actually Frantanac. Frantanac? Well, I mean, the pronunciation Frantanac. guide was more knack than knock. But I want, I want to say knock too. <laughs> the Chateau Frantanac. Frantanac? God, I can't do it. 